In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. just the easy sort of target to sort of pick out and just go oh yeah it's the shooting's fault like you know like I've been a post back home that is doing worse taking off t-shirts and hugging each other and stuff like that like you know so I don't see no difference between us doing that and them doing that like you know what do you think I suppose of residents raising concerns now is it to be expected this party yeah I'd say I'd say they'll die down soon it's just because the nightclubs like they're not open so I think people are just going to house parties after the pub so hopefully it'll die down once October 22nd hits so have you been doing a bit of party now yourself since you got back? I've done a little bit. Went out to town there last night and kind of got off home and you kind of just walk past College Court. A bit crazy, but sure, look, everyone just wants to kind of break out and enjoy yourselves because we had a whole year of just doing nothing. I mean, that's it. So what do you think, I suppose, the residents raising concerns, saying that yeah. it's a bit on the extreme level? Like, it's Hopefully, anyways, October 22nd. If it's going to be in nightclubs or whatever, they all open back up. Hopefully that will all stop because people will be elsewhere, so... That's, that's the plan anyways, I hope, for the residents. We're forced nearly to have house parties because there's literally nowhere else to go around. Like, and The city is so far away from us as well, so it can be really expensive. So sometimes we just think it's easier to throw some, something ourselves. But, yeah. And what about the residents? Yeah, well, I think we do have to live our lives as well. We can't be locked up all the time. So like, we have to have our college experience as well. And they got the chance, I think, before, and we didn't. So it's kind of unfair. So that's what I think anyways. Josh Crosby reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, have you ever wondered how our status in the world, or at least how we perceive it, affects our well-being? Well, take a listen to this. I suppose a lot of people listening, though, might think, I don't think about that at all. I don't care about my status. I'm happy with my lot. Yeah, well, I, I think that people have, um, yeah, kind of a funny idea of what status is. You know, I mean, research finds that it's a human universal. It cuts across class, gender, race, age. Um, we've evolved to, to be very interested in what other people think about us in terms of if you feel that people don't think that you're very useful or um, good at what you do or you, you, know, you, you don't dress well or whatever it is, if somebody thinks bad of you in that way, it's, it's pretty ordinary for us, to, for us to feel bad about that fact. So, so you know, when we're talking about status, we're not, we're not necessarily saying that people, you know, everybody wants to be Michelle Obama or the King of Thailand. Mm. It, it's simply the fact that we, you know, we feel good when people respect us and rate us. The because I suppose a lot of self-help gurus or psychologists would say you, you have to spend, uh, you have to pay far less attention to that kind of thing. You have to think about what you think about yourself rather than what others think about you. So, is it? Are you arguing that this is kind of inescapable? Yeah, I am actually. Yeah, and and certainly this, you know, the research bears this out. Um, often people, um, you know, go to meditation or mindfulness practices in order to try and you know get rid of this urge for status. And there was one, one, one um, study that was published last year um, from psychologists in I think it was Holland, um, where where they they examined three thousand seven hundred um, meditators and they they specifically practiced to reduce. I think they're called the ego needs and, you know, uh, that, that kind of thing. And they found that they, they, they scored very highly in measures of spiritual superiority. So, <laughs> so you know, w- w- when these people got good at meditating, got into meditating, they felt good about themselves. And actually, they felt a bit better than all those other people that weren't quite as enlightened as them. And, you know, so it's funny in a way, but also, it, it, you know, it's completely recognisable. That is the human condition. You know, we, it's, it's very hard to, well, it's impossible. It, it's wired into our brain it's how we experience reality so i suppose conversely if one feels you've had a sudden loss of status 
that's not very good uh, for your well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, suffering a loss of status or even being left behind by people around us who zoom ahead of us is associated with all, all kinds of um, mental health conditions. The most um, traumatic experience of status losses are experiences of humiliation. You know, when, when the game that we're playing, when the group that we're in kind of turns, turns on us and kind of robs us of all of our status. Um, you know, one psychologist describes that humiliation as the nuclear bomb of the emotions. Humiliation is implicated in, in the very worst of human behaviors, including you know, honor killings, serial killings, uh, spree killings, um, and even up to genocide. So, you know, when, when nations feel humiliated by other nations or groups, uh, bad, bad things often follow. I assume there's cultural differences here in, in that, say, in, in the United States, people uh, would kind of tend towards more self-aggrandizing on this side of the Atlantic. Uh, people might be a bit more self-effacing. Even yeah, if, that's absolutely if, correct. I mean, we're actually a bit more like the states than, than most countries, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, as you go into Scandinavia, think you know people are you know um, status is offered to people who are self-effacing, and um, it, it, but it really gets um, um, sort of the opposite of that when you go into East Asia. And uh, you know, I was fascinated to read a, um, a, a, a paper by a, a Chinese um, anthropologist writing about face, the idea of you know keeping face there. And he described a, you know, a, a typical corporate situation in which one member of a corporate team is picked out for individual praise. And in, in, in China, um, that, that's seen as bringing shame upon the group. So, so, so that individual will actually work less hard in future <laughs> in order to... Yeah, so, 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 so you know, in East Asian cultures, in Confucian cultures, it's, if, if, you, if you aggrandize yourself, you're actually reduced in status. So, so you're, yeah, that's absolutely correct. I mean, the, the ways that we play for status are very, very culturally um, you know, varied. Does it vary between men and women? Um, that's a, an interesting uh, question. Um, does it vary between men and women? Um, the, the, the most obvious difference is that men um, use dominance to earn status with violence an extraordinary degree um, more than women um, but violence isn't the only way that that we use dominance you know um, bullying ostracization reputation destruction are also forms of dominance and of course if you go online you know you'll, you'll see no shortage of both genders using all of those strategies unfortunately to uh, yeah. pull their rivals down in status or at least attempt to some fascinating research from writer and researcher will store from Moncrief. Now, a newspaper column appeared at the weekend in the Irish Mail on Sunday that was described as nasty by the Taoiseach Michal Martin. The column criticised the appearance and the dress sense of a number of Fianna Fáil politicians at their thinking. The senator, Fianna Fáil senator, Erin McGreehan, uh, who was named in the article, was on News Talk Breakfast uh, this morning saying it served no purpose other than to put people down. Well, Henry McKean has been speaking to the public about this and fashion experts, no less, not unlike himself. Uh, Henry, uh, who have you been speaking yeah, to? Yeah, well, I'm not a part of the, the style police. And in 2004, Bertie Hearn, he was criticised at a GA meeting. Uh, he was wearing an ill-fitting yellow suit uh, with trousers. Oh, yeah, trousers on the beach in Inchidani. Uh, yeah, and at the time, there were just pages and pages of how disgraceful his outfit was. And you were talking about this Mail on Sunday article uh, in 
in it, uh, they talk about Norma Foley. They say, uh, Norma Foley was her usual blah, blah, black and boring, but I need to know where she got her square-toed brogues to avoid all stockists. Barry Cowan and Darrell O'Brien was also uh, criticised. Uh, I got advice. I did get actual advice from an expert, from David O'Connor. He's the group general manager of Louis Copeland. He dresses many of these politicians and ministers in T-shirts over the years. He gave me his view. The way you dress is your own personal brand. And, you know, there's no getting away for, from it. That's how people judge you. And uh, I think you need to take that on board. Another thing I would say is, well, is to any younger people in an organisation, dress for the job that you're looking for. So dress for the job. When we take the Fianna Fáil thinking at the weekend and the Mail on Sunday having a go at some female politicians and male politicians for their outfits and perhaps the lack of them, is it OK to make personal remarks or if you're in public life or in any life, should we all look a bit smarter? Yeah, look, I think at the moment there's probably a bit of a transition because, you know, a lot of people have been dressing extremely casual for the last last number of years, really, the, well, a year and a half. And I suppose it's just as we're, everything's opening back and we're getting used to meeting people again and, you know, and talking to people face to face, that I think it's probably time for everybody to analyse the wardrobe and to start to really think about, you know, this new world and, and how to dress for it. Pennies have actually said that their sales of um, casual wear, active wear, have gone through the roof. Uh, people love to uh, just wear whatever they want. I have a confession to make. I watched TV last night in a dry robe. Is that giving up? <laughs> well, yeah, I think, I think that, look, if, in, in the confines of your own house, you're entitled to dress any way you want. Um, but I think when you're out in public and you're meeting people, you just need to be that little bit more conscious. And of course, you know, uh, people have been wearing elasticated waistbands for the last year and a half as well. And it's only when you put on a suit or a jacket or a, a a formal pair of trousers, then you can actually see if you put on those few pounds or not. David O'Connor, the Group General Manager of Louis Copeland. What were you watching, Henry, that you had a dry robe on? I was watching that BBC drama that Vigil. goes out. Yes, thank oh, you very much. brilliant, isn't it? Very, very good. Anyway, sorry, we won't get caught down that rabbit hole. I could be here all day. <laughs> what, was it your own dry robe? No, it was, my wife got it for her birthday from her sister. I just couldn't wife's dry robe. think of a purpose of it except to be warm in front of the TV. Right. Um, and I, it wasn't very stylish, I admit that. Not very stylish all at right. all. All right, okay, back to the matter at hand. I mean, look, there's a huge amount of criticism uh, going mm. the way of... Mm. Uh, of this reporter. I think some of it is, is verging on the bullying, if you ask me. But but uh, like, was it fair comment what you had to say? Free speech? Or as Micheál Martin says, was it nasty? Yeah, uh, Senator Erin McGreehan's dress was described as creased. Uh, as, uh, Senator uh, Fiona Lachlan uh, looked like she was going to a hoolie, according to the article. And Barry Cowan's stomach was belly bulging out of the blazer. And I know I'm wearing a shirt at the moment and it's a bit belly bul- bulging, just a little bit. But I asked the voters, because at the end of the day, it's about the voters. And I asked, does image matter? substance isn't it really I think it's the substance of the politician or the person that matters I can understand you don't have second hand outrage (laughs) if it was intended to be derogatory and insulting um, it was uncalled for I think yeah I'm just wondering what was the point in making the remark I think everyone (laughs) judges everyone on like as soon as they see them but you shouldn't judge anyone on like how they dress Anybody that's representing the country that's up on the world stage should be decently dressed appropriately. Like they've got to look smart. Yeah, I think they should make a bit of of an effort to look smart. 
And do you think it crosses a line when personal remarks are made in a national newspaper uh, about the way a politician dresses, or is it fair game? Do they need to be held to account? I don't think the national newspaper should be saying anything to people who are underdressed. But you would think maybe these people, if they are professional, somebody around them, like their close family, should maybe make a comment to say, you know, would you not go out and buy some... <laughs> nice clothes, maybe. Clothes. Or so you're you know? in some decent clothes. You're wearing blue, you're wearing a polo shirt, blue chinos, uh, white runners. You work in fashion? No, I don't work in fashion, no. no. I'm just in visiting a friend here at the moment. In politics and business, it is important like how you dress and how you portray yourself because ultimately you want people to you know, have a sense of credibility in you. So, yeah, I think it is important. If the comments are personal or if they relate to appearance or hair or skin or anything like that it might go too far but no I think it is important. I don't think there's any benefit into it rather than maybe an interesting read. I think they should wear what they want but I think she crossed the line nothing I think better than I expect. Not just commentary? Commentary? Like you're wearing an orange jumper and I just want to say I like your orange jumper but, but if I was critical of it Obviously, you'd be offended, and you're not in the public eye. But if not you were, a bit, I'd be very happy to know the feedback. Thank you. You'd be happy. <laughs> Henry McKean, there reporting from the Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cudahy. Now, Japan Airlines has introduced a perfect solution for any travellers who'd rather avoid sitting near children by highlighting which seats have been booked by under twelves. Brenda Parr, columnist with the Sunday Times. Good idea, bad idea, ridiculous idea. Do you know? I was just thinking, Shane. It's a bit like having having a no child area, or at least a child. Uh, distinct area on a plane is a bit like having a peeing area in a swimming pool. Fantastic <laughs> idea in theory, but in fact, it's never going to work. You know yourself. If there's a rowdy toddler or a crying baby on a plane, everybody's going to hear it. So, I mean, I think it might give some comfort to people who would like to think they could be separate from a noisy kid, but um, I don't actually think it's going to work. On the other hand, I'd say, you know, conversely, strange as it may seem, I would say that it would give some comfort to parents who are travelling with small kids. Why, can because, we can know, we set separately from our kids then? Is that how it works? No, <laughs> no but you know yourself, how you, I'm sure you've been there having been that soldier myself with a toddler or a noisy baby. You know, the last thing you want is dirty looks and oh, cuts from people sitting around you. So if you could choose to sit in an area where you know there are people with babies and, and you're not going to get that vibe from your from your, your neighbours, I actually think that could be a benefit of it. Okay. Um, I mean, you know... I suppose there's very little justification for it on short-haul flights. I can see why if you're on a, a red-eye to New York, you might actually choose to be as far from, from the, the couple with, the, with the, the, the toddler as possible. But I think most people, to be honest, are pretty tolerant of, of, of children on planes. Yeah, I was just going to say, does this just show how ridiculously sort of anal we have become, that you have to actually book a seat to stay away from a child because the child might cry. I mean, are we that, have we become precious, that precious yes, as human beings? Yes. I think so. But you say, I, I say it also is, is, is in, in, in ease of, of airline staff who are probably mithered with exactly these type of precious pe- travellers saying, you know, I'm, I'm, there's, there's a baby behind me and he has to stop screaming, please move me. So I suppose it is, you know, it makes, it makes a certain amount of sense. I, I, I imagine, I, I can't see it being exceptionally successful. But I mean, my, my first thought was that'd be great if you were travelling with a couple of small kids and you knew there was a child zone where you could sit in peace without uh, incurring displeasure from people around you. Yeah. Columnist Brenda Power 
from News Talk Breakfast. On Friday, Lunchtime Live travelled to Ballinan, County Mayo, to meet with one family whose house is literally falling down due to defective building blocks. Here is Andrea Gilligan and Gemma McLaughlin. And the qualification and the discussion around the, the, the current scheme, and I know the government have talked about, you know, looking at it and reviewing it. And, but even, even at the kind of 90% level, like how, how feasible is that? It's not. Um, we're looking at um, roughly for the bones of your house, not looking at now new kitchens or anything like that or new doors or anything like that. You're looking at another... It's between forty and sixty thousand to get it to some sort of livable way, and that's like where do you find that? On top of moving out and paying rent, which I know has been discussed and saying that they are going to pay rent, but that's all they've said. They're not saying is it a percentage of the rent? Is again is it going to be capped? Is it going to be for a certain amount of months? There's there's no information. It was like a you know, like a token thing that was thrown at us, you know, and a lot of hard work went into it with them working groups. But we've no information. Can't plan, can plan nothing. And I like to plan, so I do. Yeah. like to know what's ahead, like, you know. Um, I, My name is Henry McLaughlin and I am 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And when the house was being like, like when they're doing the test, seeing this machinery, I was like, oh my God, the house... I thought he was going to fall. I was so terrified. He couldn't describe it. It was just scary. I'm like, it's a, it's like a big mountain I have to climb. Same with the, the COVID-19 and stuff. It, it, it was like he had a panic attack. It was horrible. He had the two children in here listening to the noise of the test and they just didn't know, they just... It was, it, I think it became real to them then. They understood that something's wrong with our house. Um, by the time we move out, Henry will probably be going to secondary school. So the upheaval of secondary school and moving out of your home, it, it's its not even been thought of. Like it, it's And our family as a whole already have had a massive thing with mental health and had to go on that a journey on that. And now we have this as well. Like And every family has something. Mm. It's horrible, so it is. Just horrible. Okay, well, Gemma, I might maybe just get you to. Can you just can you bring us maybe and show us um, just to show us, I suppose, what what yep. you're talking about? No bother. Great. Okay. Just have great with pictures. Oh, it's kind of images. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they're great. So this is one of the worst ones here. So you see, it starts at the bottom and then goes up here. So just okay. So we've just come up the top of the stairs, Gemma. Just describe to us here now what we're looking at. So this crack has always been here. Um, the marks that you see, the round marks, are where the kids' um, gate was, um, and it has got bigger. So I can fit my nail into them now. Like that shouldn't be the case. That's not a sat- settling crack, as people say. And then it goes all the way up here, and then you can see it at the top of the window, and then it goes all the way up to the top. You run round and open the gates, Henry. So these are the ones that are saying they're telltale ones. Go around. And then this is where it's starting to come away. So the cracks are the whole way around. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. It yeah. Oh, yeah. To... It, just, it just gets worse. <laughs> so, so you can actually physically see where the, the yeah. brick is coming off the wall. And you see, if you put your finger in, it starts crumbling away. It starts coming out, so it does. So it turns into dust. So that's like 
few more good showers like we had today and the water is just going to get to that more so like this is this is like it's it's um it's small compared to what some of the pictures you see to be really bad um but this is just it's like a jigsaw (laughs) um and then you'll see the foam so the foam is where it was falling away but um we had mice coming into our house because so of just the tell us what, what we're looking at here, Gemma. So, now, don't, don't stand in the grass, this is where the dog goes. <laughs> this is his run. So you can see here where it was starting to, so those holes there where the plaster had fallen away. And then it's, you can see it all along. Um, so those mice coming into the house. Um, it scared um, you, like, mum away. She, <laughs> I was in bed and then mum's like, ah, mouse! <laughs> And I was like, oh. Yeah, so wow. not ideal. We have a cat. We don't get mice. She yeah. brings she them to us. She catches them. them. Like she does. most of them anyway. And then you had to silicone or you had to... F- so we, the, that's foam. That's yeah. expanding foam that okay. you put into it. Uh, that's where your test, that's where the samples were taken. So it is. And then, so you can see here where this starts. And it goes up. And it goes here. And then it comes out here. And it keeps going up. And you can see it the whole way up. And where you were in the hall is on the other side. So this okay. both leaves are done. Can you hear here, outer and inner? So that means that both the outer leaf and then what you've seen in the hall and up at the top of the stairs is the inner leaf. So it means that both blocks over the 20 years have just are disintegrating away. What a heartbreaking situation to be in. Gemma McLaughlin from Lunchtime Live. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. These are not easy topics to take mm. on in young adult fiction. No, but you know, kids are exposed to so much these days. I mean, from, from, from the age of, sort of three and four, they're listening to things on the news, they're watching TikTok videos, whatever. They're seeing things, even no matter how hard you try and control it, they're, they're being exposed to a lot more, I think, than certainly we were when we were young. And, you know, they're well able, I think, to, 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 to kind of grasp things as well. And the key, the key message here is, and this is why I'm hoping primary school teachers will come on board, is this book is going to open conversations. And the kids who've read it already have all gone down to their parents and said, you know, tell me more about refugees and, and all that kind of thing. And also, it opens their mind to the, the plight of others. Because, you know, we do live in a little bubble here in Ireland. You know, it's a, it's a safe country. It's a peaceful country. And, you know, we, most kids have food on the table and all that. So it's just to get them just to walk a mile in someone else's shoes and just to think about other things. And I just think if we can get to children early, the book is full of hope and it's full of um, compassion. And if we can get to kids early and kind of encourage that empathy and compassion in them, you know, they'll be really decent adults, you know. So I think let's try and get to them early. And also, obviously, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of getting kids to read. We were all, of course, familiar with that truism about that authors should write what they know. Your own lived experience is far from being a refugee. So far from explain the research because you you did some interesting research. Yeah, I did. So um, I read a huge amount, obviously, um, in my initial research and then I wrote the first draft. But I felt it was really important in this case to actually talk to somebody who had that refugee journey. And I wanted to look, look, look into their eyes and just, you know, really get that level, extra level of authenticity and um, and I suppose um, emotion. So I rang the Refugee Council and they put me in touch with this beautiful family. And Sarah was 17 when I first met her. She was doing her leaving. She'd spent fifth year in direct provision in Mosny. And then she'd just, they'd just been relocated to Enniscorthy to a very nice house, actually. And herself, her mom and her two sisters were there. And I went down one night in November. It's three years ago now. 
And I met her and she was amazing. And she told me her story, which was very similar to Safa's story in the book, which is very similar to so many of the Syrian refugees being smuggled through Turkey and then abandoned on the edge of the water and just left with a dinghy um, and life jackets that they didn't know if the life jackets were real or not and none of them could swim and then the smuggler said none of them could swim none of them could swim no and the smuggler said well we know we said we'd take you but we're going now so they just left them so there was a a dinghy blow up dinghy for 12 people so 50 of them climbed into it and um, they had no navigation system or anything and they just prayed and it was pitch dark and they just washed up on the beach in, in Greece three hours later so that was Sarah's story, which is very, very similar to Safa's story as well. But how did she find her way across Europe then? Because that's obviously that's the, mm. the most acutely dangerous part of the, the journey. But there's still thousands of miles and challenges to go before you get to Ireland. Well, it was, what Sarah's story was, she got stuck then in Greece for a year. And then they, they spoke a little bit of English. So they requested to go to an English speaking country. But they thought maybe Canada because some of their friends had gone to Canada. And they just got, were given Ireland and they just arrived. And that, that was it. She was in school. She was in fifth year within a couple of days. Did it change the discussions with them and with Sarah? Did it mm. change your perspective or understanding on any of the refugee issue or experience? Um, not really, because sadly, so many of the refugee stories are the same. What was interesting were just some of her funny comments, like which I ended up putting into the book. She said she didn't understand why Irish people painted their skin brown, why Irish girls put on so much fake tan. And I just thought that was a really funny observation and why they had spidery eyes because of the false eyelashes of the teenagers that she was in school with. I just thought it was such a funny observation because for her, it was just so bizarre. And then they kept saying, yeah, but you're lucky because you've got fabulous skin. And she was saying, well, in my country, being pale is beautiful. So she's kind of, you know, laughing about how nobody's ever happy with their lot. But um, what was amazing about meeting this family is that they've become a very important part of my life. So I've been very enriched by writing this book, in fact. And, you know, Sarah is now studying pharmaceutical science and I'm really proud of her. And she's amazing. And she's still very much a, a person who's very important in my life. Do you think to some extent the book may help in getting attention back on the issue of, of refugees? Because at the time at which you probably began to think about writing it, I was mentioning this just during the ad break to you. Yeah. The, the, the image of a little Aylan Curley lying on the beach. <clears throat> in advance of our chat today, I Googled it again to remind myself. And it's like a, a kick in the stomach when you look mm. at it. It's, it's just the saddest and most harrowing of things. But to some extent, you get the sense with pandemics and everything else that, you know, the dogs bark, but the caravan has moved on. Mm. Well, interestingly, I was talking to Sarah about it and she, I think, and quite a few uh, other Syrian refugees have contacted me since the book came out. And I think they do feel that they've been slightly forgotten with the pandemic. But, you know, sadly, here we are, Anton, with another refugee crisis on our hands with Afghanistan. So I think, you know, that's, I'm hoping that's going to get the attention that it needs. But look, it's it's something that, that has happened over over many, many centuries and I think will continue to happen the refugee story for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, war or famine or natural disasters. It's something that is, is part of our lives and our children's lives. So hopefully, look, hopefully by reading The New, the new Girl, kids will just be, you know, will understand the importance of kindness and friendship and, and just to be nice to a new kid who's from a different country and doesn't speak the language and has just been landed here, you know. Sinead Moriarty and Anton Savage from The Pat Kenny Show. Now, this week, Talking History explores the life and intellectual legacy of ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus. Here's Patrick Gagan. Was he someone who was controversial in his own lifetime? In a sense, he's not a major figure. He was a, he's a slightly marginal figure in some respects, but a very important one. There's a sense in which he stands outside the mainstream of um, Greek philosophy. Many of the other philosophers that we know of, people like Plato, Aristotle, the Stoics, they all trace themselves back to Socrates. Um, And Socrates had famously said that it's virtue 
that's the most important thing if we want to live a good life. And Epicurus stands out of that tradition that's very much focused on virtue. And he says, no, no, it's all about pleasure. That's the thing we ought to be thinking about instead. So there's a sense in which he's a dissenting voice from the mainstream. And I wonder, does that dissenting voice make him then a little bit controversial? Because it's it's that connection then with fine food and wine that he gets associated with. But it's, even though that's not quite the pleasant life that he was thinking of, it means that's what he gets associated with. Absolutely. And I mean, a couple of controversial ideas in Epicurus. So that would be one of them. And another would be the thought that the gods have no interest in us that he he's not an atheist he thinks gods exist but he thinks they're off somewhere else doing their own thing and they're completely disinterested in human life and so we ought not to worry about them and those two ideas together the hedonism and this kind of um indifference towards the gods makes him controversial particularly um, later when Christianity is the um, dominant point of reference so if we do want to lead, lead and live a happy life uh, if we follow his instructions, what should we be doing? Well, as I was saying a moment ago, he thinks that it's pleasure that's the key to living a good life. So we ought to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. Um, all of our sense of happiness and well-being ultimately comes down to how much pleasure and pain we experience. Um, there are two really significant parts of what Epicurus has to say about this that differ him from the gluttonous pursuit of food and wine image of hedonism that many of us have. The first is that he thinks that it's avoiding pain that's more important than pursuing pleasure. Um, that's really what we need to do. We need to focus on avoiding pain, not enjoying as much food as possible. So we ought to pursue food in order to avoid the pain of hunger. But once we've overcome the pain of hunger and we're, we've got enough, we're satisfied, we don't need to keep pursuing more and more of that kind of physical pleasure. So that's one key thought. And the second key thought is that we're not just concerned with physical pleasure and pain like hunger, we're also concerned with psychological pleasure and pain. So the sorts of anxieties and concerns that might keep people up awake at night, what we want to do is avoid that kind of psychological pain and suffering. Um, and that's where the idea that philosophy is some kind of therapy that comes, comes into play. What we want to do is to avoid those kind of psychological anxieties that can really inhibit us from living a good life. Some fascinating insights there from philosopher John Sellers from Talking History with Patrick Gagan. And of course, you can tune into Patrick every Sunday evening from 7 till 8. Before that, though, Kira, we're getting a huge reaction to the debate you just hosted between Terry Shannon, Cork City Councillor and former Lord Mayor, and Kieran Ryan, spokesperson for Dublin Cycling Campaign, as to whether or not helmets should be mandatory for cyclists. Loads of people getting in touch. Adam from the Navin Road says, I hit a van on my bicycle two years ago. I was wearing a helmet. The helmet split down the middle. Without it, I wouldn't be texting this message. Non-argument. Helmets compulsory. Yeah, another one says, Hi Kira, how would mandatory helmets work for bike rental schemes? Will tourists be expected to carry a helmet around? What about head lice? Someone will have to wear a helmet after someone else if you have helmets for rent beside the bikes. Yeah, it's a fair point. Uh, there's no need another another vehicle to be involved for somebody to fall off their bike and bang their head. Sorry, there's no need for another vehicle to be involved for someone to fall off their bike and bang their head. Helmets should be mandatory. 
Yeah, uh, and another listener says, I'm an avid cyclist, guys, who also works in an emergency department. Anyone advocating cycling without helmets has no idea of the catastrophic injuries that can occur and do occur to cyclists without helmets. I have seen numerous cases of lives being saved by helmets. Cyclists should all wear helmets. Anything else is neglect. But Niall is not impressed with Terry Shannon. He said it's hard to listen to someone who focuses on the small things rather than the bigger picture of better health for our citizens and a better environment from creating cycle lanes and encouraging cycling. I think the problem with saying cycling uh, helmets are mandatory, Kira, is it will stop people. They, it, we've seen from yeah. other countries. It will it stop people cycling. Cycling is so good for you, we don't want to do that. To that. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a tricky I one. I too, though, have worked in, in A&E departments and I have seen people coming in and a smashed helmet in their hands. Oh, absolutely. Look, we want people to wear cycle, yeah. uh, cycling helmets, but uh, whether or not it should be mandatory, I don't think is necessarily straightforward. Uh, the idea of insurance for cyclists, I mean, oh, dear God. Anyway, 53106, let us know what you think. Should they be mandatory? We want to hear from you this morning. Plans for a social housing development in Moycullen in Galway have been rejected by local councillors in the area. But is there an antisocial stance in the area or is there more to this? Our reporter Barry White now joins us from the Connemara village. Um, so Barry, what's going on here? Hi Anton, good morning. So local councillors in Connemara have rejected a plan to build the development in Moy Cullen of 31 houses, all of which would home people on the social housing list. And these homes were to be situated at an area of woodland in the village near a local playground. Now, this development has been strongly opposed by locals in Moy Cullen, which, as we know, is an increasingly popular area for commuters as it's only a 20-minute drive from Galway City. And yesterday I spoke to these locals who said they welcomed the decision to reject this local social housing development. You know, it's the, basically it's the, it's the last wooded area left in the area, you know, and uh, there's a playground up there where kids play. And that's, that's all we have here in the area. There's no community centre. There's nothing else, like, you know. But is there not a desperate need for social housing and any housing, especially in Galway and the vicinity of Galway City? Well, there is always room for that, but there's housing being built up beside me at the moment. There's more houses going down below the village. So this one little small area that's green, I think should you, and a lot of people think should just be kept that way. Well, I am, because I live very near the wooded area, and that is the only wooded area that is left, if you like, in central Moy Cullen, if you can call it that. And indeed, as you can see from here, there's been a big uh, social housing development, which, to my mind, is unwelcome, because you need that type of mixed housing in, in people need housing, you need that type of housing in a village like Moy Cullen, but you're going to do so much. And that was wasteland, what they're proposing there is to destroy woodland which is a different uh, story altogether. And you live near this I do, I, I live in the village, and my interest is I live very near to that. Would you have any problem living close to social housing, though? Well, personally, no. Um, no, I wouldn't. I mean, OK, just say that's easy to say that until it happens. But personally, I wouldn't. But this, to my mind, and many people in the state where I live, it was about the destruction of woodland as well. They're only just after finishing one development there, and it turned out all right. You know, and that should be suffice in this locality for the moment. And you just walk around anywhere here. There's nothing about housing. There's a development going on up there. There's 50 houses going up, you know, another one down there. And our sewage treatment plants and the uh, wastewater are not able to take all that at the moment. Are locals against social housing or...? Not really, no. Everyone has to live and everyone has to survive. But there's no talk at all about affordable. 
houses, do you know? Which is very important in this day and age. So, uh, every, every class and everyone has to... Be, it's a tradition in this country that people like to live and own their own houses and have respect for their homes. Okay, so varying views there from locals in Moy Cullen. Some of them obviously saying that this wooded area should be left alone. Will there be a perception that that's an excuse they're using just to stop more social housing being built in the area? Well, maybe, yeah, Anton. And some of our listeners may have tuned in to yesterday afternoon's Hard Shoulder programme with Kieran Cuddy here on News Talk. And he spoke to the local Green Party councillor here in Moy Cullen, Alistair McKinstry. Now, he voted for this social housing development to be built because he says 80% of the trees in this wooded area would be untouched even when these 31 houses would have been built. So he says he has no concerns about the environment here. However, one local business owner I met yesterday, Niall Quinn, who runs the Moy Cullen bookstore, told me that this area where this development was proposed is a renowned area for flooding. And he says no housing development, whether it's social, affordable or private, should be built there. Well, I welcome the development. It's just the location of it that was the issue. Uh, Mike Collins had bad problems at flooding for as long as as long as I'm here. I'm here 16 years, and every time it gets really bad rain, every time we get really bad rain, there's flooding up the mountain road that's impassable. You see cars getting stuck up there. There's a children's playground right beside it. So I mean, there's there's a number of different issues kind of going on in the background, but. Uh, but, like, you know, we're, we, we do have social housing that, we, that has just recently been built, so I think we're very welcoming. I don't think there's any issue there. Maybe a minority might have an issue, but I so think... So this isn't about social housing, it's just about where these were due to be built? Yeah, and actually, if you, uh, if you go onto, for example, the MyCullen Facebook page, you'll see, like, this flooding issue is, is going back a long time. And actually, I know people living on an estate up there that have had uh, issues with their house just sinking. So, uh, yeah, you can, there, there's two sides to it, but I think the more sensational side is to do with what happened down in Uchtarard where, you know, the direct provision. Um, but too many of us in my column have, uh, you know, have, had, have known difficult times to have a problem with, you know, social housing, I think. All right, Barry, so that's one local business owner there being fairly emphatic in saying that locals aren't against social housing. But there's already social housing in my column that was recently built, isn't there? Yeah, so an estate of 49 council houses in the heart of Moycullen has been built and is almost fully occupied, while 48 more council houses are to be built in another estate in the village. However, it's the plan for these 31 council houses near this wooded area, which locals are against, as we've been hearing. And it seems that locals want this land put aside, so a community centre or something similar, which can be de- can be developed there. However, I met one man in my Cullen yesterday. His name is Kevin. and He's actually on the waiting list for social housing himself. And he didn't know this development had been rejected until I told him yesterday. Well, I've been on it about 20 years now. And um, there's a new thing, plant-based leasing, which sounds like a very good idea to me. And if you're, on the, if you're on the list long enough, you're allowed to apply for apartments and houses. They tell you about them about three or four times a year. And they give you your own sort of identification numbers and stuff. So you can apply and then they tell you whether you've been successful in, in, um, in finding, a, finding a property. Is it difficult here, especially in Moy Cullen, well, to find somewhere? I don't know somewhere? how it is in Moy Cullen, but it's, in Galway generally it's, it's very difficult. Unless for it privately, to find a private you know, apartment or house, it's very difficult. Especially apartments, they're very expensive. Yeah, well, I'm renting somewhere at the moment. I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones, but a lot of a lot of people aren't so lucky, you know. 
is there a desperate need for social housing in this area? I, I think there is. I think there, yeah, there, there always will be. I mean, Galway is, you know, it's a very expensive county to live in. I mean, it's a great county, it's a great city, but um, you need money to live here. Given that there is a desperate need for social housing in yeah. this area, are you surprised that there has been a social housing development in Moy Cullen no, no, that's been no, rejected? No, no. Well, I didn't know that it being rejected because there are, there are houses built here. There are no apartments, for, but there is a whole estate that's been built. You'll see it in a few minutes. You can go up the road, you can see it yourself. But we, I didn't know about that myself. I didn't know that one had been rejected. But, um, yeah, but it's, it's needed, I mean, especially now. Barry White reporting for The Pat Kenny Show. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. On Thursday, one of England's most cap players of all time, the great Karen Carney, joined Nathan Murphy on Off the Ball. This has been a pretty groundbreaking time for women's football in Ireland. We just had the news that there's going to be equal pay for the men's team and the women's team for the first time. It's been something that's been a long time coming in Emma Byrne was right behind that when I think she really brought to the fore the conditions that the women's team were going through of having to get changed at airports and give back their tracksuits when they were on international trips. When you were in that Arsenal squad, and you know I think it was a time Alex Scott was there, you talk about Emma Byrne, there was a lot of very influential figures in the game. I know you're a lot younger, but at that stage, are you looking at what's going on, at, say, at Arsenal and the men's team and the resources that are a big club like that and thinking... Actually, we're winning Champions Leagues here. We deserve more and we need to go and chase that. Are you at a stage where you're just thinking, we just go and play our games? I think the only success comes when you win and you can can speak up. So the only thing we can control is how much we won. And I think then you can ask for stuff. But then on a negative, that is like, why would you need more when you're winning everything? So it's like a real conundrum at the time. But... You know, it wasn't the right thing for the women's game, really. We, we, you can't be changing, you know, in airports. You can't be giving your tracksuits back. You're representing your country. You know, you're, you're representing your football clubs. You should be a part of, not apart from. So, you know, people like Emma Byrne, who I think has got the most Champion League ex, um, appearances, you know, known and how many caps she's accumulated for her country. You know, she is a pioneer for Irish football and it's fantastic to see her speaking out and demanding more and, and rightly so because that's the only way progression happens and I think going back to Arsenal when we won the quadruple like I said we just controlled what we could we, we can't control how many people invest or do what they do we can only go and represent the badge to our best of our ability and you know I was really proud of that and I know the rest of the team was and I think the club was as well at this. so um, we made history and, and like I said no one's done that since it's a good time to talk to you as well because we're on the eve of the new WSL season and there's a big television deal involved with it and I think everybody's going to see a lot more and the more people see, the more they understand, they can analyse, they can get to know the players, they can be critiquing in a far more informed way, which is exactly what football should be at every level. When we're watching over the next couple of weeks the standard at the very top of English football and you think back to when you started at Birmingham and you were probably about 14, 15 at that stage... How dramatic a change has there been over the last 20 years in terms of quality? Well, I kind of liken it to uh, a vicious cycle, really. Um, you know, without without funding, no one's professional. So going back to how we spoke about Birmingham or Arsenal, you're training once a week. You're not going to be, be good. Um, so then the product doesn't look as good. Then no one really wants to watch it. 
um, and then no one watches it, there's no sponsorship. So how do you break that cycle? And along the way, there's been people that have gone, no, we're going to break that cycle and there's been greater investment. Then there's more training time. So teams are more go semi-pro, then they go professional, the product's better. People want to watch it. Sponsors get involved, more money comes in and TV deals. So you turn a vicious cycle that was what women's football was into more of a virtuous cycle. And, you know, that, that's what's happened now. And these TV deals are, are amazing. Like you said, greater exposure, more professionalism. The product will get better and better and better. And I was speaking to a player the other day who I played with quite a while ago. And she was like, look, as the level has, has gone through the roof, it's getting better and better every year. And that's because of investment. You know, if you invest, you're going to get a better return for it. And it's taken a long time to get to this point, but one we should be super excited about and one that we should be really proud of that's happened and so many people want to push the game forward and will continue to do so. Some strong words there from sports journalist and former professional footballer Karen Carney from Off the Ball. On Saturday, Down to Business explores the importance of well-being focused workplaces. Here's Bobby Kerr and Nick Marks. And what about that said definition of happiness? Like, do you have, what's your definition of happiness at work? Well, it's yeah, happiness is a bit of a slippery word in some yeah. ways. It can mean different things to different people. Um, basically, the way that I use it is particularly in the way that we say I'm happy with something. So that's a sort of what we call a cognitive judgment. So at the end of every week uh, at Friday Pulse, my business, we ask people, um, how happy were you at work this week? And people answer from very unhappy to very happy. And they can answer that really in whatever way they want to. You know, if things have gone wrong, it can be for a multitude of reasons. It can be they're bored. It can be the relationships have gone wrong. It can be they're too stressed. There's too much work. They're out of their depth, you know, or they're not supported, particularly they're full of frustration. So there's lots of reasons that people can be unhappy. But when people are happy at work, it's normally the same things in the sense that they're feeling a sense of accomplishment about their work. They're getting on with people. So um, so basically, I allow it for people to define themselves. But in many ways, happiness is a is a word that covers a broad range of emotions from quite quiet ones like peace, serenity, contentment, right up to joyful enthusiasm, awe and wonder. And really, it's the whole space we want to get into in a team. Like you want your team to be curious and interested. You want them to be enjoying themselves and working well together. No, that's a, that's, a, that's a good answer. And really your specialist of well-being, as you call it, is a, is a combination of psychology and then merging together with economic statistics. They, they seem like different bedfellows, but I suppose uh, the metrics yeah. and the measurement of those uh, gives you a sense of how, how happy or otherwise people are. Indeed. And... and- they pretty much go together in the sense that, I mean, what we call happiness and other measures of well-being, which we tend to call sub- subjective measures. We ask people to report how they are. Um, so economic ones tend to be objective, where we measure stuff. And the subjective measures add new information. Like you can have a team that is, you know, profitable, successful, but they're really unhappy. And that actually that unhappiness is a risk because that team's going to collapse um and you can have a team that's happy and not very productive it's rarer but you can have that and then that team's going to go out of business so basically they complement each other they add information and that's why i would never say you replace all of your economic indicators with subjective ones but the subjective ones add more information which is particularly useful about assessing future risk 
if we look at some of the statistics, I know you're a statistics man around the world in, of employment post-pandemic, Nick. Um, there's been a major, amazing a shift, I'd suggest, in the workplace now towards the value of the employee, uh, the employee's well-being, the employee's happiness. And people are going to probably make uh, judgments as to whether they stay or want to stay with a company or develop with a company or not on the basis of, you know, how much they enjoy it. It's it's become much more prevalent, would you say, uh, since the pandemic? I think the pandemic has fast-forwarded something that was already happening. You know, there was already a lot of talk about employee well-being, but it was a little bit more lip service and theoretical. And, of course, we all had to adjust so much last year and everything got thrown up in the air. You know, so many of us went, not everybody, but so many of us went to work from home. We had to work with new things and we had to be really creative and adaptive for how we did that. And so it's sort of impossible to think it can go back to exactly how it was before. Um, and so, you know, we, all of us come out of this pandemic, if we're coming out of it, changed, uh, you know, to varying degrees. And, you know, some huge frustrations, some really difficult things people have been through with kids at home and, you know, pulled in all directions. And, you know, some goods in there, too. And for some people, it's worked very well. You know, if you've, if you've got enough money and you had a home office and you had a partner that you loved, you know, you got through this pretty well yeah. if you were on your own with you know, it's very, very variable, the experience of people. Some thought-provoking analysis there from wellbeing specialist Nick Marks from Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. And of course, you can tune into Bobby every Saturday morning from 10 till 12. OK, I'm going to leave you with now Gavin Riley and Donald Fallon and Hidden Histories. Have a great weekend. We're going to talk, though, about the earlier visit, uh, 1965. And this happens in... Maybe the most important year of the band's history because it's the year that they really, really hit their stardom. Oh, yeah. I mean, 1965, the band began 1965 as, you know, stars, as a big band, and they ended as global superstars. Mm. And, and the Rolling Stones in that year, they caused real joy and, and a few other emotions <laughs> uh, in Irish teenagers' lives. And they come here twice, which is incredible. You know, they do Dublin, Cork, uh, and Belfast on the first tour, and just Belfast, uh, Dublin on the second. And thanks to the film Charlie is My Darling, uh, directed by Peter Whitehead, we know exactly what it was all like. Whitehead was kind of the director of the swinging 60s. Uh, he previously made a film about Alan Ginsberg, the, the beat poet. Okay. And then he was tasked with capturing the band of the decade, as many people felt they were, the band who are finally going to dethrone, if you will, uh, dethrone the Beatles and by accident he kind of captures this brilliant snapshot of Irish youth culture you know, mm. at, at a moment in time So you mentioned the, the, the attempts to dethrone the Beatles if you like and, and this really was the defining thing that you know 30 years before Blur versus Oasis this was like the, the great debate that every teenage group was having it was over which of those two young British bands you liked and parents often had their views on which one was more appropriate yeah, Absolutely and look you know every great tale of course requires uh, a rivalry in whatever part of life you know, yeah. it, it, it may be oh, Oasis Blur, uh, Mick O'Heffo, we could go on and yeah. on and on, whether real or invented. Yeah. And, you know, in, in, in the world of 1965, the rivalry was Beatles versus Stones. And I think what the Beatles had was they had kind of intergenerational appeal. They were kind of clean cut. Uh, they were friendly. Mm. Teenagers loved them and their mams loved them and their grandparents might even love them. But when it came to the Rolling Stones, we can take this from one Irish newspaper. Girls, think of five way out characters with long hair and crazy music that your mothers wouldn't like to see you out with. And who comes to mind? Their motto is convention go hang, roll over Beethoven. Yes, it's the Rolling <laughs> Stones. And that isn't NME or Melody Maker. That's the Leinster Times in January <laughs> 1965. So there's a fear, you know, there's a real fear, yeah. the essence of how uh, young girls and, and their mothers, you know, mm. felt 
uh, about about the Rolling Stones. The Leinster Times is the title I've never come across before, but I like that if you presumed there was a Leinster Times in 2021, it would be like a local paper in Kildare or Carlow, and I love the idea that people would be getting their, their pop culture uh, knowledge from that. Um, in January, uh, when they do come to Ireland, like they're putting in a shift because they manage in three days to play six shows. Yeah, and the plan reads like the plan of a band who are suddenly making a lot of cash and, and want to capitalise on it. So two shows in Belfast train down to Dublin, two shows in Dublin the next day, drive down to Cork, two shows in Cork, six shows uh, in three days. Wow. Now, they'd already been in Belfast the previous year, but there's something very different about 65, and, and the press reports are great. 6th of January, the Rolling Stones played to 3,000 screaming kids in the Belfast cinema over the heads of a cordon of RUC men who formed across the front of the stage to prevent the young audience coming too near its idols. And one of the people who's also on stage that night is Phil Coulter, actually. He's, <laughs> he's up with the support act. And he recounts... I Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. Because like, that, that, that isn't, like, it just seems so incongruous, though. <laughs> Phil's in the support band. And he recounts, back in Belfast for the first time since leaving Queens, I got a kick out of looking out from the stage of the cinema and seeing a squad of RUC officers forming a barricade to hold back the screaming teenagers. Mm. It's so innocent when you think that the North is, like, you know, just a couple of short years away from erupting yeah. into total chaos. The best thing RUC men could do in January 1965 was protect the Rolling Stones from, yeah. from the teenagers. It's, from a sh- and shaking. it's a shame that their projects and their work assignments weren't always quite so benign. Uh, the press weren't always kind and some of them were maybe more interested in the crowd that the RUC were trying to keep away than the band itself. And there's one journalistic <laughs> report which finds the band to be completely underwhelming. Yeah, after Belfast they come to Dublin and, and the, the Irish Times says the reception for them by the teenagers was deafening. The aisles were jammed and those at the back had to stand on their seats to see the stage. Cork, uh, the evening echo in Cork is great, the report says. Uh, the stones rolled in and rolled out, leaving not a ripple on the surface of Cork's normal life. Which <laughs> <laughs> wow. is a great dismissive kind of Corkonian. It sounds like somebody uh, didn't get a ticket. Bah humbug, exactly. <laughs> but when the band come back then, in, in September of that year, things are really different. I mean, they're now arguably the second biggest band in the world. Uh, by September, I Can't Get No Satisfaction is a massive US hit. And it's a weird one, actually, because it's a hit in America before it's a hit uh, in Britain okay. and, and Ireland, but it's about to become number one in Ireland and, and stay there uh, for a month. And this time they have Peter Whitehead with them and he's tasked with capturing that second tour. And the footage is absolutely incredible in terms of seeing a band at the height of their power, but the sound as well. It's, just, it's, the, it's the best they ever want. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.